have been looking at the marks of the church, and one of the marks of the church is pure doctrine. And one of the things that we've been exploring after we discovered that pure doctrine is, in fact, a actual mark of the church is, how do we keep the doctrine of the church pure? And we're thinking here in local terms of our local church. How do we keep as a church from drifting? Well, the first thing that we would want to say is we have an orthodox statement of faith. Now, when I say orthodox, orthodox means that it's been generally accepted. It's not something new. We have a statement of faith that is accepted, and it is in line with major confessions and creeds throughout church history. In other words, there's nothing unique about what we believe in terms of the the triune God, the person of Christ, and how we receive salvation. So a statement of faith is one way we keep the church doctrine pure. Another is preaching that faithfully exposits the word. It stays within the boundaries of the church's statement of faith or a doctrinal identity. And so preaching as it stays within the boundaries of Scripture and it stays within the boundaries of what we have all agreed upon as saying, yes, this is what we believe. It's a really good test to see if the preaching is in line by testing it actually against the statement of faith. But here's the thing we're going to look at tonight. Let me begin with this question. What if one of the ways that the Lord uses to keep the doctrine of the church pure is also the same thing that God uses to grow the church. Okay, so this is something that God uses and commands us to do that helps to keep the doctrine pure, but it's also God's means of growing us numerically and spiritually. Anyone want to guess what that is? Discipleship. It's discipleship. It's training in the Word. So, to start off on a subject with discipleship, that's I know you've probably heard many lessons on discipleship. We have to start off with what is a disciple. A disciple is not a special category of a Christian. A disciple is a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. So a disciple is one that follows Christ. That is simply what it means. Mark Dever says this, quote, There are no disciples of Jesus who are not following Jesus. So simply put, if you are a Christian, you are following Jesus, so you are a disciple. It's not a special class of Christian. But that brings us to the point of, well, what is discipleship or discipling? Very simply, it is helping others to follow Jesus. That's all it is, is discipleship. So in one sense, I can't disciple a non-Christian unless Part of that is evangelism that's leading them to. So discipleship is to help someone grow in their knowledge of Christ. So you look at, 
you don't have to go there, I'll, I'll turn there for you. Luke chapter 6, in verse 40, it says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So, discipleship is to be trained, to be taught, to be like who? To be like Christ. That's discipleship. It is for we are together trying to be more like Christ by His grace. Now, where do we see the command to disciple? Matthew 28. I did not give her the answers before. He did give me discipleship. Well, I just told you. Yeah. Matthew 28, verse 18. It says this. Verse 18. This is the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, look at verse 19 of that text. There is one imperative in the text. And an imperative is a command. When you look at the text... Can anyone tell me what the imperative is? Go. No. It's make disciples is the imperative. That's the command in the text. So the command is to disciple people from all nations. Now, when Christ walked with the, the disciples, the original disciples, the, the twelve apostles... Uh, Jesus said that his ministry was for the house of Israel. He says, I've only come for the house of Israel. But then what he says after his resurrection is he tells the disciples that they're to do what now? They're to go into all nations. And in the book of Acts, what do you see? Do they just go into all nations preaching the gospel? No. They stay in Israel until Peter receives a dream and he goes to a centurion's house, and the centurion, and he, he's, he doesn't even want to be around him because he's a Gentile. But he has this dream where God tells him, you know, don't call anything unclean that I have made. And so Peter then all of a sudden realizes, oh wait, Jesus was serious. We need to go to all nations, all people, and share the gospel with them. Now, what you see here in the Great Commission is this, is you see one command, that is to make disciples, but three words then explain the process. What is the process of that discipleship? Teaching. Teaching. Go. First word of verse 19. So, the command is to make disciples, and then what we see in that is these three words that tell us what we have to do. We have to go, we have to baptize, and teach. So when we think of the Great Commission, normally what comes to mind when you think of the Great Commission? What's that word that we're supposed to be busy doing all the time? What do you think, it, what do you think of when you hear the Great Commission? Go. 
Starts with an E. Evangelism. The Great Commission is not primarily about evangelism. It is not, it is evangelizing the lost, but that's only part of it. It's actually to go beyond that. You'll notice because baptizing follows becoming a disciple, that's the first act of obedience that we have. And discipleship itself is actually what? Training people. One commentator says this in a book on discipleship. He says, therefore, to make disciples, we first help people come to the point of baptism, which means publicly confessing Christ and becoming part of his church. The phase of making disciples is traditionally thought of as evangelism. Then we guide the new believer in a path of following Jesus in obedience, which has traditionally been called discipleship. Now, one of the things that happened in our country is there was a major push for evangelism in the 1950s and the 1960s. The Southern Baptist Convention became the largest... Now, the Southern Baptist Convention is not a denomination, but for the sake of argument, it became the largest denomination in North America by a long shot. Do you know how they did that? Through massive evangelism. But you know what's been happening since that initial big growth? It's been on the decline. Why do you think that that is? Not teaching. There wasn't discipleship. So there was a saying, you get them in through the front door, but then what happens? They slip out the back door. So the saying was really prominent. I heard it all the time. You've got to learn how to lock the back door. <laughs> but actually, what we've done is it, it can't be just sharing the gospel with someone. So it is one thing that we should share the gospel with someone. So if you're, you're in that providential position where you meet someone and you're in a conversation with them and it turns into a gospel conversation and let's say it's on an airplane and they receive Christ, that discipleship there is going to be very difficult because you probably won't see that person. So you need to recommend that person get into a local church. But let's say you share the gospel with someone in your area, and they come to know Christ, what's the next step after they have come to know Christ? Do you just say, yes, great, now you get baptized, you join the church, and then you're done? No, not at all. They have to be discipled. They have to be discipled, and they have to be, dealt, they have to be helped and trained. Now, one thing is, is about this is making disciples in terms of people coming to a saving knowledge of faith. Can we actually make anyone a disciple? No, it's expressly the work of Christ. We cannot um, ourselves make someone turn into a follower of Jesus. Jesus makes his disciples, but how does Jesus make his disciples? Through us. Through the preaching of the gospel. He does that through those times where we are praying for someone and the Lord opens a, a conversation for you to share the gospel with them and they receive Christ. That is how 
Uh, God normally saves people as we are his instruments. And so our job is to go and share the news and then baptize and teach those that have responded to the gospel message. Now, in this it says, And Jesus came and said to them, if you look at verse 16, it's the eleven disciples. Judas is out of the picture, obviously. He's speaking to the disciples. Let me ask you this. Who today are his disciples? We are. We are. So, no one escapes this. If you're a Christian, you're to be a discipling Christian. And if you are a Christian, and you've walked in the faith for any period of time, it's, I'm going to say, at some point, you were discipled. At some point, someone helped you in your faith. In some way, that has taken place in your life. And so not only have we likely been discipled, but we are also then to go and disciple ourselves. So when we see this, oh, it's the 11, that was just their job, or we might think today, well, that's just the missionary's job, or that's just the pastor's job. That's not true. If you're a Christian, you're a disciple. And if you're a disciple, you're to be discipling, and you've likely been discipled. So who's to then go and, and disciple? Every Christian. The other thing is about this idea of discipleship is it is a, an ongoing process. I just want you to notice what happens when Jesus calls his first disciples. In Matthew chapter 4, in verse 18, you know this story. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. That's their job. They have a happy job. They make money. They have families. And you think about if they had any clue that they would suffer painful martyrdom for following Christ and that they would see Christ in three years hung on a cross. So Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now notice the connection. They are to follow Jesus, which means that they have become what? Disciples. And Jesus says, I will do what for you? Make you disciplers. So in, inherent in the call of Christ, to follow Christ, is to then become a fisher of men. Immediately, it says, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And so Jesus calls them not to just listen to a message. Jesus doesn't just give them the gospel message and say, put your trust in me. He actually calls them to a life. So when they set down those, those nets, now they're picking up a new net. 
That net is now to become disciplers, which Christ is going to train them to be fisher of men. Now, so this is the expectation of all disciples. Now, who's our model in this? Is Jesus, right? We just saw what Jesus did. He becomes our model. He spent time with his disciples. He trained his disciples, and then he sent his disciples out. So what are some practical things that we can learn about discipleship from Jesus? I have a list here. It's not exhaustive, but I think it will give us an idea of some important things. Jesus gives us an example. In John chapter 13, Jesus said this after he washed the disciples' feet, For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Now, the example that he gives them is that of servitude that of service to one another, to love one another. But I would say this is the first example that we could pull from that, and Jesus saying, I'm giving you this example to do this. If you're going to disciple others, you have to be humble. Humility is, if you're not, if you're not humble, if you don't walk with humility, you're not going to have any success in discipling people. You have to walk with humility. The Savior of the world who created the world walked with humility and demonstrated humility. I think that Jesus shows us an active prayer life as an example. In Luke chapter 5, in verse 16, it speaks of this, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And you find that in the gospel accounts is that Jesus would have this incredibly busy schedule. He's healing people. He's walking from town to town. We read that he's tired from these things. But yet he would still wake early in the morning and he would go and commune with his heavenly father. He would spend time in prayer. Prayer has to be an essential mark of discipleship. But also studying the Word of God. And Christ models this for us too. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 50, we read how Jesus learned. In Isaiah 50, verse 4, it says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens my ear to hear is those who are taught. The Lord Jesus was taught by His Heavenly Father morning by morning, learning the Word, and then teaching the Word, knowing the Word. And so, an essential aspect of discipleship for us, not only do we have humility, not only do we have a prayer life, but we have to be in the Word of God. We have to be active in the Word of God We need to breathe in the Word of God. We need to study the Word of God and study things that are written about that Word. A third thing is this, is I bundled a bunch of things all into one. And it's from 1 Peter. And this is probably one of the toughest examples that Christ gives us. It's in 1 Peter 2, verse 21. And I see this, he gives us the example of faith, Christ gives us the example of trust, sinlessness, 
Now, none of us are sinless, right? We are all sinful. But, but the whole point is that we are trying to not be sinful by God's grace. We have to be conscious about that. We also see sacrifice. So faith, trust, sinlessness, sacrifice. And so what you see here in verse 21 is this. For to, uh, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example. Here's his example. So that you might follow in his steps. You think about the steps of Christ. Leaving heaven to become man. To be spit upon. To die upon a cross. To bear our sins. That's following in his steps. Look what it says. He committed no sin Neither was deceit found in his mouth. You think about the qualifications of an elder. They have to be above reproach. That doesn't mean that they have to be perfect. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any elders. But it does mean that nothing can be charged on us. Verse 23 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself. That is that trust that is that faith, trusting him, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. He sacrificed himself so that we would be saved. So you see faith, you see trust, you see sinlessness, you see sacrifice that Peter tells us Christ has given us as an example. There's something else that comes with the idea of discipleship is this, is effort. Effort. Effort is this, is did Jesus just, because he was God, just all of a sudden call people to himself? Like, no. What did he do? He went and sought them out. And somehow... He knew who it was, how the Father communicated that to him. We don't know. Remember, Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Jesus calls them. He knew that this would be the twelve. He knew that one of them would be the son of perdition. He goes out and takes the time to actually seek them out. We have to seek out disciples. By the way, that's contained in the very commission itself, isn't it? To go. That effort. The teaching. Does it take effort to teach? Yeah. It takes effort to teach. Something else that's required in discipleship is is patience. In Mark chapter 9, verse 33, Jesus has just told them of his death. And so what do they start talking about? Which one of us is the greatest? Verse 33 
And they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? As if Jesus didn't know. It's almost like, you know, God asking Adam, where are you? (laughs) But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he knows what they've been talking about. He's told them about his death, how he's going to go to the cross And they're arguing with one another about who's the greatest amongst them. And does Jesus, does he he just come down on them really hard? No. No, he, he graciously works with them. Another aspect of this related to patience, because we see it in the next verse, but we also see consistency and endurance. Three years. Jesus discipled for three years. Three years is a long time. And actually, to my knowledge, I, I actually don't see that they ever took a break. I know that they would go for rest. I know we also, the Gospels give us kind of the cliff notes of those three years. Well, we really don't read of a time where Jesus says, hey, we're going to take a couple weeks off. I'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Now, maybe that happened. We don't really read of it, do we? What you read in the gospel accounts is Jesus calls them, follow me, and then what? They follow him, and you read in the narratives that they're doing ministry together. Jesus is teaching them. Jesus is praying with them. Jesus is healing people so you really don't see this idea that like they took a break from it. And so this is a verse that stands out to me. In John chapter 14, Jesus is having this final conversation with his disciples where he's telling them, I'm going to go. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? Been together for three years. They've spent every day together. They They eat breakfast together. They eat lunch together. Jesus has created out of nothing food. Jesus created out of water. He made wine through the process of creation. And they've seen this. Jesus walked on water before them. And they said, what manner of man is this? And they were trembling, the text says. And so, Philip, now just show us the Father, which Jesus has been saying, if you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? You still do not know me. 
One of the key things to discipleship not only has to be patience, but it also has to be consistency and endurance. In other words, when you disciple someone, you need to recognize that you're going to invest some time and you're going to, in that time, experience some disappointment. You're going to experience letdowns. And so how do you respond? You respond like Jesus did. Graciously, with mercy. Then there's another thing that has to be part of discipleship that we get from Jesus' example, and that is an expectation. In other words, when you're discipling someone, you need to have clear expectations for those that you're discipling. In other words, discipling isn't like, hey, we, we, just, we just get together and we, we hang out and talk about the Bible and there's no expectations. That's not discipleship. Discipleship comes with clear expectations. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Now Jesus has been walking with them. He has been teaching them. He has revealed who He is. It says this in verse 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So this is a turning point in the ministry of Jesus, because up until this point, he hasn't sent them out. Now he sends them out two by two. He said, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So there's so much about this is that Jesus is going to send them out to proclaim the gospel. But then with proclaiming the gospel, he gives them specific instructions that require faith, that require some trust in Him. So when Jesus gives these instructions, He doesn't say go out and, and, and just share your testimony. He, he gives them a specific message that they are to proclaim. It's about the kingdom of God. You're to go and proclaim this. And then He gives them instructions on how they're to do it and what they will encounter when they do it. And if you encounter, do this. So He had these expectations that He put upon them. Here's the thing about expectations. Shakespeare says expectation is the root of all heartache. When you're discipling and you put expectations on people, guess what you're going to probably get with that? Like Shakespeare says, you're probably going to get a little bit of heartache. Could they go out and do it as well as Jesus? No, but it's funny because what Jesus tells them is this in John chapter 14, you're going to do greater things than I did. And the church did. You think about the people that Jesus reached, then you think of the people that Peter reached on Pentecost alone. It changed the world. Jesus did more by pouring out His Spirit into Peter for Peter to preach that Pentecost sermon and then the gospel to go to the, to the known 
parts of the world from one sermon. That never happened with Jesus' preaching. And so whereas that expectation, maybe they didn't always meet the expectations of Christ after those three years when they were empowered by the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, because by God's grace, they started meeting those expectations of Christ. So those are the things that we learn from Jesus himself. Now, I want to give us a few ground rules in discipleship. And I, I, I got some of these from Mark Dever's book called Discipling, which is a really good book, or it's called Discipleship. The first thing is this, is you need to, uh, we, we need to understand discipleship within a local church context. And here's what I mean by that. What is the entrance into the church, to the visible church? What is the thing that we do when we first become a part of a church? It's baptism. That's the visible means of joining a local church, which assumes that something then is taking place within the church of this teaching that's taking place. And so we have to see discipleship within a local church context. The church itself is a discipleship environment. How is it a discipleship environment? What are some ways that it's a discipleship environment, the church itself? Teaching. Teaching. Yeah, so teaching takes place. What else takes place? Fellowship. Okay, fellowship. And that's really important because in fellowship we get to practice the what? One another's. The one another things. Passages. Preaching takes place. So there's general taking there's there's general discipleship. You're learning the word of God right now. We're thinking through things in a very practical way. But the church itself is to be training ground. In fact, we're told that Jesus actually empowers the church for this very purpose in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip you think about what discipleship means is training. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So this transcends into those now discipling others. So in other words, when you are being taught the Word of God, it's for a purpose according to God. And what is that purpose? Well, what does it say in the text? It is for His glory, but what's the text say? To equip the saints. It's to equip the saints for building up the body of Christ. So, in other words, we have the gift of teachers that Christ graciously gives to the church, not so we just take but actually so that we give. That's the whole reason we're given teachers. And part of the works of ministry is helping people be more like Christ. If you look at Titus chapter 2, we see this. Older men are to be 
sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to be to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. So what do we see there in terms of discipleship? What are older men supposed to do? Or you could say more, more mature men. What are they supposed to be actively doing? Teaching the younger men. And what are the older women, more mature women, supposed to be doing? They're supposed to be doing the same thing. And what's amazing is you look at this, you don't see here that they're to be trained, we might think, in doctrinal things. You don't see necessarily something there that is, okay, teach about the hypostatic union. That's not in the text. It's actually very, very practical. And here's what we must understand. Our theology is practical. One of the great systematic theologians, his name's Francis Turretin, and I'm reading a lot of Francis right now. He says this. He says the, the ultimate end of theology And this is a guy that's written a three-volume set of systematic theology. He says the ultimate end of theology is not head knowledge. That's part of it. But the ultimate end of it is practical. So in other words, why do we learn about our triune God? Why do we learn about our Savior? So that we can live like him. He's revealed Himself to us that we may be transformed to live like Him. Now, I said this has to take place in the local church context. Why? Well, one sense is this. In, in terms of discipleship, if we're discipling someone, let's say, that's outside of the church, you actually can't really discipline that person, can you? You can confront a brother in sin. doesn't matter if they go to your church or not. And you should, if you need to. You can also take a, another witness with you to confront a brother in sin. It doesn't matter if they go to your church or not. And if that continues to persist, you can take the sin to the elders of their church. And then that church has, can do whatever they want. But the thing is, is, you can't do it. So discipleship really should be taking place within the local church for that very reason. There's also another reason here is this. And let me just give you this scenario. Let's say someone from another church came to me and said, I want you to disciple me. What's the problem with that? If it's someone from another church, they're a member of another local church, what what could be a potential problem with it? Maybe I won't state in such drastic terms that it's a problem. But what could be a potential problem of me discipling someone else in another church? Where's their pastor at? Where's their pastor at? Where's their church doctrinally at? Yeah, because we, we, we might have entirely different, we could be 
denominationally different. You could have secondary differences. In the local church, what do you have? You actually have set boundaries that the church has said. These are the things that we agree on. We've accepted summaries of what we believe. Discipleship that occurs outside of the local church may not include those boundaries and can cause problems, and then this is actually no longer orderly. And our God is a God of what? He is a God of order. So let me tell you what I'm not saying by saying that. I'm not saying we cannot fellowship with others that think differently from us. That's to confuse fellowship with discipleship. That's not the point. And I'm not saying that we cannot have theological discussion with others that are not part of our church. And, and I'm also not saying that we can't encourage someone that's a new believer that's in another church in a different context. We certainly can. But we, we also want to recognize that that discipleship they should be receiving should be in their local church. If they don't receive that, they should ask for it. And if they ask for it and don't receive it, well, you tell them, well, then come over to our church. The primary channel for discipleship is training inside of the local church. The second thing is, is that it's under the supervision of elders. Discipleship should be. So there can't be, even in our local church, this would be frowned upon if there was a rogue teacher training someone outside of the leadership of the church. We can't just have rogue people starting up their own things separate from the church. Now, the congregation holds the pastor accountable, but guess what the pastor's job is? Titus 1.9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is also, by the way, to the elders... This is the, the uh, requirements of elders, a plurality of elders, that are supposed to be not only refuting bad doctrine, but they're to be positively teaching good doctrine. That's part of their job. So discipleship really needs to be under the supervision of the church leaders. And guess what? In this place, the church leaders would encourage discipleship. Another thing is about this is when you disciple, you have to have a purpose in mind. I think we saw that already in that list of attributes that we found in Christ. But when you disciple someone, and where I'm leading with this is this, is that you ought to think about discipling. Have a purpose in mind. Don't just, I think I'm going to do this. Have something in mind. Consider where the person is at. If you've ever sat down and met with me, I can throw about 20 or 30 books at you really quick. And I have to filter that. Not everyone wants to read books. You have to take each person where they're at and how to, the best way to reach them. Each person's an individual. But what you can do in discipling, it can just be simply, I'm going to go through the Gospel of John with you, or I'm going to, I'm going to take an R.C. Sproul book or a Jerry Bridges book or maybe a MacArthur book, and we're going to go through it together. 
and learn it together. We're going to meet on these things. And so when we have a purpose in mind, it's not merely a fellowship time, but rather it's intentional training that has the sweetness of fellowship with it. The other thing is this, is not only have a purpose in mind, but have a person or persons in mind. And then you have to ask these two questions. Are they willing and are they teachable? You might think, I can't believe you said this or you did this. But there have some been people that I've refused to disciple because they weren't teachable. Yeah, you have to, someone has to be teachable. And if they're not teachable, then I'm not going to give up an hour of my time just in meeting. Forget about the two hours beforehand that you're trying to prepare something to meet with them over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with people that want to be discipled. You know, the, Jesus calls the disciples, follow him. They followed. If they didn't follow, he wasn't going to chase them down and grab them and say, you guys must follow me. No. So you have to ask those questions. Are they willing? And are they teachable? So as you think about discipleship, if you think about the example of Jesus, let me say this. A primary means of preserving and propagating pure doctrine is discipleship. It is a mark of a true church, is pure doctrine that is kept by discipleship. It's a demonstration of our love of Christ and that by God's grace, by His Spirit, He is operative in us. In other words, a true sign of God's work is that discipling or being discipled. And it's also this too, and I really believe this, it's a means of both spiritual growth. We would recognize it's a, a means of spiritual growth, right? I also believe it's numeric growth. Because those that are discipled are the ones that usually hang around. And those that aren't discipled, guess what? Fair weather. Back doors wide open for them. But when you're in discipleship and you're being discipled, you tend to ride through the storms in a church. Not only is it spiritual growth, but I, I believe it, it results in numeric growth. So what do we need to be busy doing? Discipling or being what? Yes, both. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the guidance it gives us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our example, that Christ who called us that we could be disciples of his. And you have given us the command to disciple the nations. And so we pray that by your grace, Father, and uh, by your grace and spirit working in us, we would desire to do this. We would seek doing this. That we would put the effort into this. For not only do you command it, but it is a worthy thing to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.